If you'd like a title for today's message, it's Lord, Have Mercy. Lord, Have Mercy. And we are in Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 to 34. It's Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 to 34. And as I said, this will be our last uh, sermon in Matthew for a, a little bit of time. We're going to preach through the Psalms in January, and then we'll have a, a vision series in February. We'll have our retreat on Colossians chapter 1 at the end of February as well, which if you are new and visiting, you are welcome to come to our church retreat. And this is the year to come because it's basically free. <laughs> uh, we're paying for it as a church. And so if you'd like more details, uh, come and speak to me afterwards. Uh, that's going to be the end, last weekend of February. Let me read to you Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 to 34. This is the last little section in Matthew's gospel before Jesus basically gets to Jerusalem. So it's a fitting place to end our year. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. On May 30th, 2020, I woke up to receive this text message from a dear friend in America. Hey, brother. Just wanted to send this to you to get it off my chest a bit. Still processing this afternoon. While I was working from home this afternoon, around 2.45 p.m., I heard screams outside our home. After the second scream, I knew it wasn't just kids playing with one another. Someone was badly hurt. I jumped up from my desk and ran out the door. When I got outside, I saw a large bulldog mauling one of Lily's friends, a seven-year-old girl. And Sabrina, my wife, was wedging herself between the dog and the girl, trying to save the girl's life. I ran towards the dog and jumped on his back, wrapped both arms around its neck and squeezed. Sabrina grabbed the little girl and ran into our home with her. As I looked up, I saw the boys who owned the dog staring in disbelief. I began yelling towards them to run, get their dad. One of them ran off while the other two stood still. I continued to yell towards them. The dog fought hard, growling, barking, and trying to bite me. I held on tighter. After a couple of minutes, the father came with a leash. He was clearly in shock, just standing there. I forcefully instructed him to put the leash on the dog. No response from him. I began yelling, This dog is going to kill me if you don't leash it now. After 30 or 40 seconds, he snapped out and put the leash on the dog. I asked if he was sure it was okay. He confirmed, and I ran inside. Inside, 
Pools of blood were flowing on our living room floor. The little girl crying in my wife's lap, her face covered in blood, part of her cheek hanging free, her arm severely wounded. I called 911 and gave them my address, gave a towel to a neighbor and instructed her to press it on the wound. The mother of the girl showed up and began wailing. Sabrina tried to calm her, help her sit down and drink water, and she refused. We continued this until the ambulance arrived, and they took the girl and her mother to the hospital. A neighbor offered to clean the blood from our living room floor. I came inside to see how Sabrina and Lily were doing. Sabrina's clothes were splattered with blood. We all hugged. We went out to eat tonight and got ice cream. We had some difficult talks together, and we're still trying to process it. Have you ever been in an emergency situation where there was no urgency from the people around you? Have you ever experienced a situation of desperation, but no dependence or, or no reaction from the crowd like Joshua experienced with this bulldog mauling a precious seven-year-old little girl who, by God's grace, after 39 stitches, was healed up and recuperating in physiotherapy. Perhaps you've experienced an emergency situation like this, where you're crying out and no one comes in, but maybe you've experienced it in a different sense, an emergency or desperate situation in your life, in your soul, in your mental health, in your being, where you feel like there's Everything is going wrong. You feel like, oh my goodness, you know, there's, there's an attack happening and you're crying out for help, yet no one seems to be responding. No one seems to listen. You might have even shared it with your life group. You might have even shared it with me as your pastor. And we're a little bit like that father standing by, a bit, you know, shell-shocked, a bit stupefied, not doing what you're requ- requiring us to do. In today's story, we, we have a situation of urgency and dependence and desperation, these, these blind men crying out for help. We have a crowd that's not reacting in the way that they ought to. And before, if we didn't read the end of the story, we're left with this question, what will Jesus do? How does God react in our emergency situations, our urgent and desperate times, when we feel like we're crying out for help? How does God see us? In this story, we have a clear situation, blind men who cannot see. And in this passage, we have three things that Matthew wants us to see before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He wants us to see, number one, desperation. Number two, disapproval. And number three, he wants us to see mercy. So let's, what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through the passage and see those three things And see how the Lord has mercy to those who cry out in desperation. So let's look at point number one. See desperation. We're nearing the end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. He's been on the earth for 30-some years. He's been ministering now for three years. And we're coming right to the end. Look at verse 29 again. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Jericho was, you know, 15 miles uh, away from Jerusalem. It was 3,500 feet um, below, uh, 2,500 feet below sea level. And so you're kind of at the base. And from Jericho, the pilgrims would make their way up 
up and up into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a mountain city, it was hill, it's elevated, a good place to um, strategically defend from. And so Jesus gets to Jericho, that's like the last stop of the pilgrims, and a great crowd is following him. He's been preaching and healing and teaching, and, and all sorts of people are with him. He's been gathering and gathering and gathering. And as they make their pilgrimage now, it's the Passover in Jerusalem, and they're going to celebrate and worship God together. But then come these unwelcome intruders in verse 30. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And Matthew wants us to picture this scene. You've got the crowds and the throng making their way up with Jesus towards Jerusalem, where soon they're going to cry, Hosanna, the King of David, coming. They're going to lay their cloaks and their palm fronds down, and they're going to put you know, Jesus on a donkey. And there's this great triumphant moment. But before that, two blind men sitting by the side of the road, begging out. The crowds, hundreds, thousands, Jesus with his destiny before him. And these blind men, you've got to picture this, because they couldn't picture. Blindness in the ancient world was an incredibly desperate situation. We didn't have all the resources that we have today. I mean, to be blind today would be an incredibly terrible thing. But to be blind in the ancient world... You're in a desperate situation economically. You can't work. You can't get a day's wage. You're, you're totally dependent upon people giving you alms. Socially, uh, you were often outcast and ostracized. If you remember the story of the blind man uh, and the, the, the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? Uh, blindness at birth was seen as a defect caused by the sin of either the child or the parent. And so they were often ostracized. And still, sadly, this happens in our world today. And then look at this poignant and powerful moment that Matthew wants us to see. Verse 30. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They cried out. They, you know, it wasn't like, oh, Jesus, um, if you have time. You know, they didn't take a ticket, uh, you know, like the RMS. They are crying out, Jesus, you know, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. If you imagine their situation, they've likely heard about Jesus. They've likely heard of his miracles. They've likely heard of all that he is able to do. They've heard perhaps, um, you know, of the story in Matthew chapter 9 of the other blind men that had received sight, perhaps the lame men that had walked, the dead people that had been raised back to life, and here is Jesus walking past them. They've been blind their whole life, and here is the healer. He's there. He's walking right by. And you can imagine what they're thinking in their heart. <laughs> it's Jesus, the powerful one, the one that people are saying the Messiah, the one that's healed before. It's him. It's our only hope. It's our only chance. And so they cry out. They call out loudly, obnoxiously perhaps, offensively perhaps in this serene scene as Jesus mounts the hill towards his crucifixion. Matthew wants us to feel this scene, to enter into this scene, to behold this picture of desperation. And these words are not just powerful petitions. Uh, these words have, or uh, they're not just mere words rather, they are powerful petitions loaded with meaning. They cry out to Jesus, Lord. 
Now, that word is a title of respect. Whether or not they were equating him with God the Father, we cannot be certain, but certainly it's a title of respect. They recognize there's something special about this man. And then they make their plea, have mercy upon us. Have mercy. They, they cry out the fundamental cry of those in a desperate and urgent situation. Have mercy. They recognize that Jesus is able to do something and that if he wills it, he can heal them. They know how desperate they are. They know they need mercy. They know they don't deserve healing. And so they cry out. They don't demand. They cry out for the gift of mercy. And then finally, they cry out, Son of David. And this is the big tip-off as to who they think Jesus really is. To call Jesus the Son of David, as we've seen through Matthew's Gospel, is to make a bold assertion. They think that he is the Messiah, uh, this promised one. If you read through the Old Testament, there's this figure that you know, comes from the line of David that will rule and bring healing and bring justice and bring glory and the kingdom back to Israel. And they're saying, you are him. You are part of that line. You are connected to the greatest king we've ever had, King David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13 gives us a picture of who they're talking about. This is Samuel the prophet prophesying over David at the end of his life. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, originally, that was about Solomon, and Solomon built a temple, but ultimately, it points towards someone that will fulfill the throne, live on the throne forever and ever. At this point, there is no son of David on the throne in Israel. And so they are saying, you're the one, you're the hope, you're the expectation, you're the fulfillment. It's an incredible scene, incredible faith. Matthew wants us to enter in. But this healing story is not just another healing story. You see, we've seen lots of healing stories, and we've seen even healing stories of blind people before in Matthew. So why include this one? He doesn't have to. He could easily just say, and Jesus arrived in Jerusalem. Why is this story here? In fact, it's here in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. It's not just another healing story, because in this story is a fundamental picture of humanity. This story is perfectly placed here at the end of Jesus' tour of ministry as a summary picture of who we are as humans, what position we're in, and how much we need Jesus. These desperate men demonstrate to you and I how we are to call upon God ourselves. The Pharisees have blown it. They've misinterpreted who Jesus is. They're blind, even though they claim to see the disciples see somewhat, but they so often get it wrong, as we've seen in previous weeks. But here, these simple two blind men, just like the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, demonstrate the heart of what a true disciple is meant to be like when Jesus is passing by. It's the heart and, and the cry of anyone who knows they're in a desperate situation. It's so different to the rich young ruler who walked away because Christ didn't fit into his 10-year plan. 
It's a picture of utter desperation. And this cry, their cry, is here to teach us how to cry out to God in our times of mercy, in our times of need and desperation. Have you ever felt this cry in your soul before? Oh, Lord, have mercy upon me. Perhaps you felt it even this week. Perhaps there's things you're going through this week or you've experienced this in your life, this fundamental cry, knowing your need, knowing you don't deserve it, knowing that God's the only one that can help you. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And it applies to not just blindness, but all health needs. It's a prototypical saying that ought to be on the lips of every disciple. Any health need, chronic illnesses, cancer, a weariness and a tiredness in your body that is just unexplained, back pains, disability, migraines, financial trouble, any health or worldly need, Lord, have mercy. Perhaps you have mental health needs, an urgent and desperate situation. You feel just this storm in your own mind, a depression that won't lift, an anxiety that grips you. Shortness of breath and panic attacks, or a recurrent and just unceasing apathy toward life. This cry is your cry, Lord, have mercy. Perhaps it's not blindness, perhaps it's family needs. You survey your marriage and you think, ah, this is a wreck. This is not what I thought it would be. You look at your parenting and you think, this is terrible. What am I doing to these children? Maybe Christmas is approaching and you're looking ahead to December 25th or whatever when your family's going to gather and you think, oh my goodness, my family is so messed up. This cry is your cry. Lord, have mercy. Or perhaps it's, it's more personal and intense and just deep and it's your relationship with God and it's your soul. And you have a sense of worthlessness before God. A sense of not measuring up, a, a guilt for sins committed, a condemnation that won't lift, a distance between you and the Lord. This cry is your cry. Lord, have mercy. Our needs may be varied and many, but if we feel our need, if we sense that desperation, then we are, in this passage, called to join in with the blind men and cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. But it's not always that simple. There are many barriers that often come between us and Jesus, and that's what we see in point number two. Point number one, see the desperation, and maybe you feel that desperation for yourself. Point number two, see disapproval. Look at verse 31a. The crowd rebuked them telling them to be silent. When you stop and think about it, this is a horrible moment. What a horrific thing to do to these blind men. The healer is walking past. They are in utter blindness and darkness, and yet they're saying, be quiet. They're rebuking them. You are doing the wrong thing right now. Now, we don't know exactly why they wanted them to be silent. Perhaps they were thinking, be quiet. You're embarrassing us. 
be quiet. He doesn't have time for you. Stop it. You're cursed by God. Quit it. We want his blessing, not you. You're in the way. Whatever the case, they rebuke these desperate blind men and command their silence. They create a barrier because of their disapproval. They don't want these blind, desperate men to get to Jesus. And you may have experienced something of this disapproval and these barriers yourself. I think it's most likely come to us in one of two ways. You might have experienced the disapproval of the crowds, maybe friends or family, even a spouse. They don't want you to go to Jesus for help. They want you to have their help or receive professional help. They want you to sort it out yourself like they have. Get your own life together. Don't go to Jesus. They might want to be your saviour and helper. They don't want to share the glory. Anything and everything they might say, but don't go to church. Don't go to Jesus. Don't cry out for mercy. He's not going to help you. He's not there for you. But most likely, for most of us, the greatest barrier to us crying out, Lord, have mercy, like these blind men, is probably ourselves. We're more likely to rebuke ourselves than anyone in this church or our life group or in this community say, oh no, you shouldn't go out for prayer. It's not others stopping you, it might be yourself. You might be saying to yourself, and when we ask for prayer later on, you might say, don't go down, just be quiet, you're fine. Or you might be thinking to yourself, I should be better, I should be able to just figure this out. You might be thinking, here I am again, raising my hand for prayer. I know I need it, but I'm just going to sit this one out because I don't want to be that desperate person again. Well, maybe there's something going on in your life and no one knows and you don't want to out yourself. And so therefore you cut yourself off from the mercy of God. You're like a blind man letting Jesus walk past. You're like, I'd rather sit in my blindness than admit it that I've got a huge problem. You might be rebuked by friends and family saying, don't come to church. You might be rebuking yourself saying, don't go to Jesus again. Figure it out yourself. But what happens next? Well, these blind men show us, again, the, the, the prototypical response we're actually meant to have in, in spite of opposition. Verse 31b. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They get louder. They get more insistent. All the more, the text says. You can imagine they are, will not listen. Everyone's yelling, shut up. And they're going, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. They will not take no for an answer because they know how desperate they are. They know how urgent their need is. And what an example this is for us. Desperate and dependent, like the Canaanite woman. She cried out the same cry, Lord, help me. They won't give up. They won't be silenced because their only hope is Jesus and he's walking past. Once he's gone, he's gone. Darkness forever, blindness forever, hopelessness forever. And so as they cry out all the more, let this cry ring and reverberate in your brains and your soul as you experience desperate and hard times. 
Go to Him like the blind man and cry out and cry out and cry out and make yourself awkward in church and in life group. Like, I need mercy. Pray for me. Help me. This is the fundamental cry of the sinner and the sufferer who knows it. And may it be our cry, no matter the disapproval, even in our church context. So Matthew wants us to see the desperation. He wants to see the disapproval. But finally, he wants to see mercy. He wants us to see Jesus and and ask, what, what, what will Jesus do? How does Jesus respond? Well, point number three, see mercy. And look at verse 32a. Two words. And stopping. Referring to Jesus and stopping. I just want us to pause on those two words for a moment. It's so easy to pass over the little things because we just expect Jesus to do it. We just expect Him to stop. We expect Him to heal. We expect Him to do it. But don't miss it. In the plight of their situation... Jesus stopped. Thousands around him. He's on his way up the hill to Jerusalem. He's got work to do. He's got to go and die for the sins of you and I. He's got to go and bear the wrath of God in our place and for our sins. He's got work to do. He's done his ministry of healing and teaching. Now it's the time for the cross. And yet, what does Jesus do? (laughs) See his mercy. Jesus stops. He stops for two blind men on a road outside of a city of Jericho. He stops at their insistent plea and their desperate call. He could easily pass on, but instead, Jesus stops. See him stop. Let it warm your heart. Verse 32b, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Now, I love it when Jesus does things like this because, you know, obviously, you know, they're blind. Uh, it would have been very obvious that they were blind. But again, it's instructive. It's obvious what they want, but Jesus gives them a chance to make a specific faith-filled request. He wants them to utter the impossible. He wants them to say what cannot be done. You see, they were just crying out, Lord, have mercy. And Jesus could have given them money. He could have given them bread. He could have given them comfort, a hug. But Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? Because he loves to answer specific faith-filled prayer. He, you know, we, we like to pray in general, generalities, Lord, heal me in general. But Jesus is, what do you want? Ask me. Test me, in a sense. And they cry. They've been crying, Lord, have mercy. And they said to him in verse 33, they make it specific. Lord, let our eyes be opened. Could you imagine uttering those words as a blind man? You've never seen before. Let our eyes be opened. And notice the, the, the way it's phrased. It, have, give permission. You're in control. You you made us, uh, we we believe there's something powerful about you. Let it happen. Let it be so. You see, uh, blind people receiving sight was a part of the anticipation of the Messiah in the Old Testament. 
Uh, There's a few passages that refer to it. Isaiah 33 is one of them. It says this in this prediction of this Messiah that will come, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. They must have known that verse. That must have been their hope that when the Messiah comes, blindness can be cured. And verse 34, And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately They recovered their sight and followed him. In pity, he touches their eyes, moved by sympathy. Jesus is sympathetic to our woes and our problems and our troubles. All those needs and desperate situations that I listed before, when you bring them before Jesus, do you know what engenders in him, what what comes and generates out of him is pity. Not shame. Not get it together, but instead pity. That, that's how his heart is motivated. He, he, that's how he works. That's how he operates. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he reaches out his hands and, and literally touches their eyes. The one, And he's the one who designed the optic nerve. He designed the eye to see. He was involved in creation. And immediately light floods in. And they see for the first time, and their eyes are opened. And they see the Messiah. They see the Son of David for the first time, and they are healed. And you know what they do? They do what the rich young ruler wouldn't do. They follow Jesus. They don't just take the miracle and go on with their life. They go and they follow Jesus. They are part of the crowd. They're a part of the the throng that go with Jesus and, and Potentially, these two blind men saw Jesus crucified. Then they saw him resurrected. They were part of the crowd of the disciples. The crowds think Jesus doesn't have time. They're not worthy. But they've misunderstood and underestimated Jesus. The picture we have of Jesus is that he has all the time in the world for the weak and the suffering. He loves the wounded, sick, and sore. He isn't put off by our desperate cries, no matter how many times we come to him. Instead, our cries draw him to us. His heart is heavy with compassion. It leaks out. His pity is persistent. And he does not grow weary of our woes. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah again predicted the Messiah. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Isn't that a beautiful depiction of the Savior? (laughs) A bruised reed, a reed that just is limp and got nothing left in it. And he doesn't just pull it out and go, well, you're useless. Smoldering wick that is just about to die out. Instead, he kindles it rather than snuffing it out. Are you bruised? 
Do you feel limp? Do you feel weak and pathetic, desperate? Do you feel like you could be blown out by a slightest wind? When you come to Christ, He won't do the final deed. He won't do the mercy kill. Instead, He reverses the situation. He will not break you, and He will not quench you out. And Matthew wants us to see the mercy of Christ our Savior. He wants us to be drawn to Him and to come to Him no matter our situation. And this passage is a picture for us to see not just of physical and desperation and healing, but spiritual desperation and spiritual healing. Because blindness throughout the Bible has a double meaning. Blindness in the prophetic text uses the physical condition to explain a spiritual reality. And this picture of these two blind men is a picture of anyone who is not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of our spiritual blindness. That if you aren't yet following Christ, in a sense, you are blind to God's goodness. You're blind to God's greatness. You're blind to Christ and who He really is. And if that's you today, you are in a desperate situation like these blind men. And this story is calling out to you. If you can sense your spiritual blindness, that you can't quite see or make sense of all that's going on in Christianity, you've opened your eyes, so to speak, but all you see is blackness and sin. You see your lostness then this passage is telling you what to do right now. You must cry out, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, for I am not right with you. And this passage is a picture of what will happen to you if you make that plea. Spiritually, your eyes will be open, and you will see Christ, you will see God for who He really is, and you will be welcomed in to join as one of His disciples. And so this passage is, is a plea to, to us to learn how to come to Him. And to those who are not yet Christians, it's saying, come to Christ today, receive spiritual sight, and see the world anew in wonder and majesty and all. So how do you see Jesus today? Matthew wants you to see mercy. Mercy amongst us. Mercy walking past. A pity and a love that reaches out. And this refrain, Lord, have mercy is a refrain that has been sung and chanted throughout all of church history. It's the fundamental plea of all followers of Christ. It is a plea in the face of the harshest, harshest physical suffering. And it's a plea that ought to be on our lips throughout all of our lives, no matter what we encounter. And so during our final song today, we're going to open up to a time for prayer, for people to cry out, Lord, have mercy. You might have health needs or mental health needs or soul needs or you might need to become a Christian today or you might have physical health needs. And don't stand idly by. Don't be in shell shock like the, the, the owner of that dog with my friend Josh. Jump in and react to the urgency of your situation. Have humility like the blind man and call out that desperate plea. Lord, have mercy.
Let's pray. Lord God, I pray and ask that you would have mercy upon us. Help us to be a people who are humble and desperate and dependent. Who come to you with urgency for all of our needs, great or small. And God, I ask that you would move amongst us and that you would move powerfully amongst us like you did 2,000 years ago with the blind man. Would the, would the blind receive sight, the, the wounded be healed, the sick be restored, the depressed be lifted from their darkness, the anxious be calmed, the convicted be forgiven. Lord, would you move amongst us now and have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.